Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm Sonika Garcia. And I'm Brad Davidson, and this is Breaking the Code. A podcast series addressing misconceptions related to the discipline of behavioral science. We hope to arm you, our listeners, with the tools that you need to make sense of behavioral science and to help you apply it to your work as communication extraordinaires. So thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks, everyone. So today I'm going to be kicking things off and I'll be throwing the questions at Seneca. This is one about sort of cognition and biases and how our brains work. And uh, as we've said before, we often get asked internally by our colleagues to provide a POV on a topic, you know, I think the podcast about fear came out of that. You know, our clients keep asking us to scare people into getting vaccinated. Uh, You keep saying it doesn't work. And so we put out a podcast on that. And today is one of those. We were asked by an internal client, you know, a a colleague to, to talk about the bias around more being more, that people like more stuff. And that when we are trying to commercialize a product or market a product where less is being sold rather than more, so it's, you know, addition by subtraction, that there's often a a bias, a mental hurdle to get over. So three drug regimens in HIV are becoming two drug regimens that's making people nervous. There are vaccines where instead of adding to the number of different uh, strains that get covered, they're actually subtracting some. And and it's this addition by subtraction that gets people a little bit nervous and it gets people uh, mentally a little bit challenged. And so we were asked, are there cognitive bases to create messaging around less is more that we can tap into because there are certainly cognitive biases around more is more. So to tackle this one, we had to ask ourselves, why as humans do we struggle with the idea of less being more? And so Sonika, where do we start on something like that? I think first and foremost, and we've said this before, we oftentimes in, you know, as communication experts, we focus on the information. Like, are we providing the right information to our customers for them to see the validity in what we're saying? So, for example, in, in the case of vaccines, actually communicating the message that, hey, like, even though you might not realize this, strains and efficacy are not directly correlated. And and you can have the same efficacy with the vaccine that has less strains and finding different ways to communicate that information. And we could do that till we're blue in the face, but that isn't what changes behavior. You know, taking a step back and understanding like this question, you know, why is humans not as a vaccine customer or patient or not as a doctor, but why do human beings struggle with thinking a certain thing and really taking it away from the information? So I think that's like the first important point to make. I think the second piece of it is uh, whenever we're presented with these challenges, because we work in healthcare, um, we always kind of look at it in the context of health. So like we look for anecdotes and other you know realms of health. I know for this specific vaccine example, we looked at like HIV treatments that have gone from two drugs or three drugs to two drugs and you know why that's been adopted. And we just, we hyper focus on like health decision-making. And I think where a lot of the value and insight lies is outside of health. So seeing, you know, how people are making decisions in their everyday life in like the cars that they buy, the houses that they buy, um, the products that they're engaging with, people that they're, you know, associating with, like all of these things about a person's experience give us insight into their health decision making. Health decision making does not exist in the silos, but I think a lot of times we focus on that. So I think when we approached this topic, it was, okay, let's leave the actual issue at the door for a moment and just 
explore humans and the way that they interact with the world to see if the answer for why less is not actually more to a lot of people might be happening. And the last point that I'll make is just making sure that we actually have an, a valid issue at hand. So because we're social scientists and, and research is such a big part of our work and an important part of our work, we, we need to investigate to make sure, like, are there actually studies that have been done on humans to see, you know, do our brains actually think that more is more? And is this actually a, a dilemma that's worth exploring? And I think for this specific case, we ended up finding a really interesting study that simply put, uh, they had given everyone uh, a bridge made out of Legos and the bridge was unstable. So it was kind of leaning, you know, there, there obviously weren't like the same amount of Legos on each side. So it was causing an imbalance. And they asked people like, fix it. Just just make it stable. Make it balanced. And I think 95% of the people in the study added a Lego to make it stable instead of just removing one. And it was just supporting this. I, I think that when we, when we came across that study, it was like, okay, yes, people are programmed to thinking this way. We want to add to fix a problem instead of removing and I mean, I just apply that to my own life as, you know, someone who's always complaining, well, I have nothing to wear. I have nothing in my closet. So my first instinct to like deal with the mess that my closet is, is to go to the store to find something to wear when really probably just cleaning out the closet and, you know, finding the pieces that I do have that obviously will work is a, a, an efficient solution as well. So, yeah, that's definitely not just your home, by the way. Yeah. Like every time we clean up, it's like, it's like we went shopping again, but we didn't. Yeah. We just found stuff that had been lost. Yeah. Yeah. And and I know so so much of what we do, Brad, is finding like the meaning in signals in the world that we live in. And so I think the next step of this research that we had to do was, okay, so research is supporting that this is in fact an issue. People think that more is better. But why? How have we been programmed at an early age or through the the course of our lives to what has reinforced us in our environment to believe this way? And so, yeah, if you could just share, like, why do we think that more is more and what signals have we been exposed to to reinforce that? You know, it's funny. Uh, you mentioned that there's not a lot of experimental data on these things. I love Lego studies and Tangram studies and any of these sort mm -hmm. of like you know, hands-on experiments and, you know, yeah, how do you make a wobbly table at a bar less wobbly? You stick a matchbook under it. So, you know, I think we're used to the idea that if you wanted to make a bridge, this was, uh, it looked like a bridge, the the Lego thing, less stable. It, I, part of the cognitive bias there is you don't really lower bridges to make them stable. You kind of shore up the part that washed away or something. So I think there's something there, but mm -hmm. you're right. I think our, our preferential attitude to fixing things is to add to them, not to necessarily subtract and, and also to reinforce information is never enough to change behavior. If it was, we'd all save more money. We'd all drink more water. We'd all floss our teeth every day. Like we know what we're supposed to do. We'd all eat broccoli. We'd never have a French fry. We know what we're supposed to do. We don't do them in part because it's hard work, in part because there's other parts to life than just living forever, right? Like I enjoy French fries. I'm gonna eat them a couple of times. But but I think we're talking about a bias here, which is really more just a natural tendency for your brain to lean one way or the other. And there are a lot of articles that are are more speculative, but seem convincing enough that talk about things like more is more historically. So 
You'd rather have a larder full of food than empty because you don't know when hard times are coming. Um, you want more land because there's this sense that you can, you know, keep building and building your own personal empire. I don't mean empire like the Ottoman Empire. I mean, like, go from two acres to five acres so that you can support your family better. Mm-hmm. Um, you want more kids, you know, and all of the 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 ideas behind this stuff, especially in an earlier agricultural sort of framework, is these are buffers against um, disaster. There, you know, more food is a buffer against famine. More children are a buffer against disease and old age and being left alone. And the fact that infant mortality is very high. More land is a buffer against, you know, insecurity. So all of those things, as Mae West said, too much of a good thing is wonderful. On the other hand, we struggle as a society today with having too much available to us that then is healthy. So we, we talk about calories being something that are far too easy to find. And the, the obesity problem in part is we've, we programmed ourselves to overeat based on the calorie needs we actually have. I mean, it, you know, weight gain does really come down to calories in and out. There's a lot of other stuff that goes into it, genetics and all that, but fundamentally it's calories in and out. And there's too many easy calories around and our brains are too wired to just sort of grab them. That's that's a lot of the analysis that you read. The, the thing that sort of is a countervailing argument to that is we as a society have always also uh, had prohibitions against taking more than your fair share. So you look at the Ten Commandments, which is one of the oldest sort of sets of rules we have collectively, whether or not you're part of the Abrahamic religions or not. It's a pretty old series of rules, and one of them is gluttony, right? We have recognized forever that there's a tendency in humans to take more than their fair share and that it's not good for you. It's not good for society. Sometimes we call it the tragedy of the commons and those sorts of things. So you don't write rules against things that people don't do. And so, you know, clearly we've had this tendency as people to take more than we need. And that sort of translates into things like people believing that more strains covered by a vaccine are better. And in many cases, that's true. Gardasil 9 covered five extra strains than Gardasil 4 did. Now, Gardasil 4 covered... I'm going to do the numbers off the top of my head. It's close. It's not accurate. But something like 80% of all of the, the warts and cancers were covered by those four strains. The addition of the other five led to, I think, 15% more. So you're covering 95% of cancers. And it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, you're getting less bang for your buck. But those 15%, if you're one of those people who gets one of those cancers, it's a big deal. More is yeah. better. And so it's hard to convince people, especially in the vaccine space where it's been an arms race. Well, we cover four. Well, we cover five. Well, we cover nine. Well, we cover 15. You go, good, I'm going to get the one with the broadest coverage. And you have to start getting into those arguments of like, well, the more strains you have, the immunogenicity per strain goes down and we really need to focus on the strains. That's like one argument too many for most people to to want to follow. So, you know, that was a long answer to the question, why is bigger better? We think it's a hedge. Uh, It's a survival mechanism. It's a psychological need we have, but it's also something that we're aware that is not good for us and that individually and collectively, we need to get rid of it in many cases. And I want to get into that because I do think we're at a 
a point of like flux in I think historically I remember even when you know when I was growing up like it's it's about moving into the bigger house and having you know that bigger car and even just the way that technology is advanced like you know there's just so many things that reinforce that bigger and more is better but I think right now we're at a time where that is shifting and we're seeing that and I I wonder if we have this conversation with um someone who you know in, in 20 years from now like is born today and you know 20 years from now like what I I don't think that uh future generations will grapple so much with like the the struggle like with more is more I think less is more will be more accepted but but we'll, we'll get into that let me let, yeah I mean we'll get into that but like here's an example of of both right Televisions are getting bigger and cheaper and mm. phones are getting smaller and more expensive. Yeah. Right. And so it's it's interesting, like more is more on a television, uh, but yeah. less is more in certain forms of miniaturized uh, technology. technology. And and I don't think we have a cognitive challenge with that. I don't think I don't think we look at the phone and go, darn, I wish this thing was bigger. Right. So and TVs have become ridiculously big. But again, like. I think there are times when less is more and there are times when more is more. And when you see some of the clunky, huge, unwieldy technologies that we used not that long ago and compare them to what you've got now for projectors, for printers, for computers in general, Mm -hmm. miniaturization is absolutely a case where less is more. But you know what I think is so interesting? Just, I just came to mind when you were talking about phones, like, so Apple has with their iPhones, they have like the plus version, which is the much bigger version. And they have like the regular version. And I, I think that that's interesting because I feel like right, there's no difference in the phone. They're literally the exact same phone. One is just bigger and there is a market for people like they they obviously have both options because they feel like some people might lean towards the bigger for not a reason like oh I need to see a bigger screen nothing like that I mean I was one of those people like I had gone with the bigger phone just because I was like oh this much I guess inherently like like subconsciously like thought this must be better and then I kid you not when I went to upgrade I felt like I was losing something. I chose to go back to the smaller one. It's the same phone, but I was struggling with like, am I giving something up? Even though like I'm provided with the information that I'm not, it's the same phone. It's literally just like a preference thing. I had no logical preference for the bigger phone. I just thought it was cooler or better. I don't even know. And that just came to my mind. I think brands are out there like acknowledging that, that some people think these two different ways and how do we like play with their minds a little bit? I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, at what point does the phone become a phablet? If you remember those become a tablet and it's screen size and, and use case and, you know, phones seem to be evolving towards a standard ish range of sizes you know, there's there's only so big you want a, a phone and I'm using air quotes around phone. They're not phones anymore. They're, they're pocket supercomputers with telecommunications capabilities attached to them. I mean, we can have a whole discussion around language and anachronistic language, right? I mean, we we do not carry phones in our pockets. We carry supercomputers. And the fact that we call them phones, I think, has psychological impact to how we treat them. If we called them pocket supercomputers, we'd be much more reluctant to hand them to children, for example, to to keep them amused on a plane or something like that. But I think there's this countervailing thing, and I think this is where culture comes in as well. So 
Yeah. Right now, there's sort of two camps of thought, right? Or train two camps, two trains of thought. You know, there was the McMansion explosion. Um, you know, home size got bigger and bigger and bigger from for I think 50 straight years. There was a really interesting analysis a few years ago maybe more than a few years ago, about how um, the size of American homes was in inverse relation to the number of bowling alleys we had. And it wasn't seen as a direct causal relation, but it was sort of like showing that we used to go out a lot more. Bowling leagues were this very social thing. As our homes got bigger, we stayed home more. We have entertainment centers at home. We have We do more in the space of a very large home as opposed to a small home with a very large public space that we'll go to. We don't go to bars as much as we did, right? I mean, we do as, as youngsters, but as we get older, we don't necessarily. So that was really interesting to me. And uh, I think there's this aesthetic going on right now, and it comes and goes through through the ages. We go from this very Rococo, very over-ornamental, or maybe not overly ornamental, but ornamental um, uh, sort of bias towards more is more, you know, like add stuff on, be more decorative, be larger, be more ostentatious and in your face. That's a bias. That's the more is mm -hmm. more bias, right? The less is more bias is the little black dress, the pearl earrings, the sort of understated minimalism, the Mize van der Rohe literally said less is more about architecture. You know, form and function should be married and you shouldn't look at ornamentation and those sorts of things. And I think that is of the moment right now that I think people are thinking about their their footprint in the world, even the idea that we think about a carbon footprint is is interesting. I think less is more when it comes to tiny homes. I mm -hmm. think people are turning what was a, you know, uh, a reality that, you know, people talk about we can't afford the kind of stuff that our parents and certainly our grandparents did. And they're turning it into, on the other hand, I have literally in my house two to three sets of China. I'm not even sure how many sets of China I've inherited. I don't use <laughs> China. I don't care about China. And I have to do something with this stuff. We literally have a storage space for stuff I've inherited. And I pay for it every month. And I think my kids look at that and they look at it as an anchor and go, the stuff owns you, right? So I'm not saying this is a permanent change, but it's definitely a durable change in cultural thinking that less is more when it comes to your wardrobe, when it comes to your house, when it comes to your footprint, when it comes to your lifestyle, when it comes to your, your brand, as it were. There are gross consumers, people who just indulge in giant displays of wealth. But I do think there's a backlash. And I think the bulk of the people that we talk to think more about sustainable lifestyles, sustainable uh, footprints and those sorts of things. So I, I'm I'm repeating myself, so I, I won't go on. No, but and, I think there are countervailing biases here. Yeah, and and just to that point, I think you said something that's important to call out is that when we think about biases and heuristics and you know like the mental shortcuts that we use to make decisions and buying decisions or just decisions in our everyday life, it transcends time. So like when we think about a time when more was more, and and your anecdotes earlier and like why we thought that. We talked about additive bias. That is a bias. We we felt like adding was always the right solution because bigger is better. Um, loss aversion was very much at play. You know, we didn't downscaling 
you know, back in the day was looked at like, what's wrong? Like, is something happening right. with your you life and your up? family? Did you lose your job? And yeah. You did you lose your job? And, yeah. Right. Whereas now, like, I know people that are, you know, have downs, like, you know, my, my parents' generation, they had these like bigger homes and they take pride in now having a smaller condo. Like that's like almost the, a, a sign of success in a different way. So like loss aversion was very much at play. Um, And then I think, you know, anchoring. So like, that's a big part of it. And, and especially with when we think about like, why is there a belief that's so ingrained? It's because we're anchored to these like mental models of what it means to be successful and what it means to, to be, have growth and, and, and all of that where so back in the day, you know, we were constantly shown as you advance in your career, the more homes, the bigger home, the bigger car, you know, the, the, the SUVs that are like ginormous trucks, like the Hummer when it was so popular, you know, road stomper. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, those were things that we would see as like signs and symbols of success and, and our minds automatically anchored to that. Like, I know when that was very popular, it was in my formative years where even now I'm still like, Oh, like that is success. And then I'm like, no, it's, it's literally not. And, and we're in this like change of, as you're saying, like tiny homes, downsizing, you know, these smaller cars that's becoming more of like the success. And, and so my, my point is, is that like, when we're, when we're tackling issues like this about humans and why we're thinking, why we think the way that we do, we have to identify, you know, biases that kind of led to that, as I mentioned a few, but then understand to change it, we can use those same biases and leverage that to then create a different narrative. So if we want to create a different anchor, you know, we can do that, but we need to know that that is what we need to do. What can we now anchor on and like push in the minds of people and make really salient where now a new belief forms and doesn't happen overnight, but I feel like knowing these like cognitive reasons helps us to then know how to change behavior as like in the future. Yeah. And I think, you know, to that point, I think one reframing that is very successful is less is more is a hard sell. More is more is not a hard sell, but we can say it's more refined. It's more elegant. It's more potent it's more condensed it's mm-hmm. more miniaturized it's more there are a lot efficient of, like i think right like efficient for, right yeah. exactly so i think that you know nobody wants off-target effects from drugs for example and you know you and i use this example all the time and maybe this is a good example to end on the birth control pills that my mother took and she was the first generation of of women who had uh, oral contraceptives available to them and mom sorry for letting slip the hipaa data but um <laughs> you know her though that generation of pills were massively massively dosed to the point where they're essentially the morning after pill now and so mm-hmm. there was this you know, look a birth control pill doesn't work if it doesn't prevent conception so there was this you know they were happy to way overshoot the mark at the time because that was the number one thing this thing needed to do and then as we get more and more sophisticated in our understanding of the mechanisms of prevention of conception we've dialed back and back and back and back and back on the dosing of these things until they're basically a microdose that's just enough to sort of trick your body into thinking it's already pregnant, but you have a very narrow window within which to take these things because it we've so, un, not under, but we've so reduced the dose that it's like the gentlest whisper against the, the sort of hormonal balance in your body is what we're looking for. That is That is increased sophistication. That is 
it is less dosing, but it's it's really more refined. It's more elegant. It's more informed. It's more evolved. And I think that is something that as pharmaceutical marketers, that is what we should really be tapping into. This idea that you don't need something that is huge to generate an effect if you're smart and targeted and well engineered and elegantly designed you can be tiny you know uh, and and that is i think aspirational and that's you know so i think reframing it's not less is more it's what is it more of because to your point mm, nobody likes yeah. losing anything and so if we have this sort of loss aversion bias and it's it's truly well understood and documented that that is one of the strongest biases we have in terms of impact on behavior and decision making then turn it into a more question it is not less strains it is more focused on the strains that matter again i'm not trying to write copy but it's very easy to reframe this as progress not loss yeah 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 i love that i think that's a really good place to end on Thank you, Brad. Um, and I, I hope that everyone enjoyed this conversation. I, we could talk about this forever, but I, I thought, you know, this episode would be good because these are the, the questions that we're presented with, with, um, you know, the work that we do within medical anthropology at Havas. And this is the conversations that Brad and I, you know, these are the conversations we have offline and like how to tackle the, these uh, challenges. And so we thought it would be helpful and hopefully interesting to kind of chat it, you know, with all of you listening. And we hope that you found it interesting and valuable. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, I think what Sadiqa just said is we're nerds when people aren't looking to. So, but, but (laughs) it's true. And, and, you know, I think, you know, the, the, the heart of this is all about applied social sciences. How do we take what we know, not finger wag at people, but help them sort of do the job better. Right. I believe that vaccination is a public good and anything I can do to help people get vaccinated more, I think is a wonderful thing. And if we have a vaccine that is more potent and effective because it stripped out some strains that we don't need, that's also a good thing. So I'm all in favor of us teaching people how to use these biases correctly. And I guess, the, you know, yeah, just last thing, like more is more, just figure out what we're giving them more of, right? Don't ask people to give up because we're not good at sort of sacrifice. You mean less is more. Uh, well, yeah, but we have to turn less is more into more is more, right? So it's less more is, is more, more right, turns right, into right. like more refined, right? Yeah, yeah. Change, yeah. Reframe that like less is actually more. Right. Okay. Exactly. Bang for your buck. <laughs> on that note, thanks. On that us. note, on that confusing <laughs> note, uh, good to talk to you again. I'm Brad Davidson. And I'm Sonika Garcia. Until next time. Next time. Bye. Bye. Breaking the code is a podcast by Havas Health and Use Medical Anthropology Department. Created and produced by Brad Davidson, Sneaky Garcia. Content editing done by Catherine Rossi. Post-production audio editing done by Gabriel Allen Cummings. And inspiration by all of you. Thanks for listening and your continued support. If you enjoy these episodes, we would love to hear from you. Please leave a rating and subscribe. Until next time.